Speaking of, let's go ahead and get started with prayer. So, excuse me. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. We pray you, O Lord, to keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit, that as your holy angels continuously sing praises to you in heaven, so may we at all times glorify you on earth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's actually the perfect prayer for what we're going to be talking about in Hebrews today. Yeah, we're just talking about gossiping, so. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on what you call praise, I guess. Why it turned it on? Reduce some of the echo. Um, <clears throat> so, we are in Hebrews chapter 13, finally. Uh, get to the end there. Uh, but we, we, might, we, we might take this week and next week to really finish it off, just so we have a little bit of time. We'll start, you know, thinking about what we want to do next time, which book topic, anything like that, if you all have any you know, questions or uh, specific desires to learn about a certain practice we do in the church, or we could even turn this into a study on the Lutheran confessions if you all wanted to. I mean, it's really up to you all. Um, and I'll have some input too. But, you know, we'll talk about it. But What are the Lutheran confessions? So the Lutheran confessions are... Um, so we as confessional Lutherans, this is a copy of the Book of Concord, uh -huh. um, and so it, it and it's. Uh, I think CPH Concordia Publishing House did a really good job of putting this together because you have different woodcuts and things like that. You have artwork throughout. You know what it is, though. You know, basically the Lutheran confessions. Uh, back during the Reformation, which actually Reformation is coming up, so maybe that's something we want to look into, is during the Reformation, uh, the um, evangelicals, as they were known at the time, you know, before they became known as Lutherans, they were concerned with reforming the church. Mm -hmm. So they put together different confessions of faith, different statements of faith, including the Augsburg Confession, um, and then the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and, there's, and, and they went on and on. They wrote out these confessions, these statements of faith, and um, they were presented to the church in Rome as a means of trying to find some reconciliation. Uh, they never meant to be... They never meant to leave the church. They, they wanted to stay with it, but Luther was excommunicated, right? And everyone who believed along with him was, excommunic was excommunicated too. So basically what they did was um, they created a uh, certain number of confessions and their statements of faith and, and teaching according to God's word that speak against the abuses of the Roman church uh, and help to correct our understanding for why we believe certain things and the way we believe them. When I and, and so, long story short, this includes a bunch of different documents 
from the Augsburg Confession, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, the Small Catechism, the Large Catechism, the Small Called Articles, the Treatise on the, on the Power and Primacy of the Pope. Uh, there's the, um, if I'm missing one, I'm awfully sorry, but there's like, you know, the book of, there's the epitome of the formula of Concord, the, uh, you know, anyways, there's, there's the formula of Concord, there's all these things like that, because over time, even though they had the Augsburg Confession, they had these different things that they held to as their confessions of faith, that they held to because they are the the true interpretation of God's word. Um, over time, certain people interpreted things differently, and so you had to get in like a, um, was it the late 1500s, early 1600s, you got a group of Lutheran theologians like Martin Chemnitz <coughs> got together and they re-examined all of the controversies that had rose up since the Augsburg Confession, and they corrected things again, and it was actually a pretty huge feat. They got all of the major Lutheran German regions to subscribe to the entire Book of Concord, mm -hmm. and they were known as the Lutherans, and so we as uh, confessional Lutherans hold to the Lutheran Confessions. Um, hello? <laughs> so yeah, so this is this is a good thing to have. Okay. In fact, one of the things that I really want to do in future Bible studies are <coughs> different studies uh, that'll take place on maybe a different day in the evening, so maybe more people can can come. I'd like to actually go through certain certain books of the Lutheran Confessions because they help us understand certain things, like. Uh, All is echoey. Um, they help us know certain things like um, why we honor the saints but we don't pray to them, you know, uh, why we, uh, how, uh, one, one thing is interesting is how what we believe about Holy Communion confesses what we know about Jesus Christ and how other denominations and what they believe about communion inherently has a certain confession about Jesus Christ as well. So one thing that was a controversy at, at a certain time was uh, the, the Calvinists or the Reformed, those, those who held that um, the body and blood of Christ were symbolic in the Lord's Supper. Martin Chemnitz and the, the, the authors of the Formula of Concord um, <coughs> they take this on saying, if you believe that what is symbolic in the holy meal is symbolic, then that informs what you believe about Jesus. Because they'll say, Jesus is in heaven. He can't come down to earth. He's bodily, he's bodily there at the right hand of God, and there's no way that he can be present in the Lord's Supper. And we say, well, then that limits him according to his divine nature, because he's God. Of course he can be in the meal. So it's those sort of things, they get, it gets a little, a little hairy sometimes, but that's why it's worth knowing these things, because it really helps us distinguish 
who we are as Lutherans, um, and that is just Bible-believing Christians, actually. We are the only, if you want to say, not, not <coughs> we are the only non-Roman Catholic uh, form of Christianity that has such a comprehensive writing of statements of belief. So it's worth knowing these things. And I have a question. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Please. I have a question. Yeah. Why would they write an apology <laughs> well, for it's, writing? It's not like that kind of a Well, no, you're right. So, so um, apology, uh, in, this, in the classical sense, is not what we would say an apology is. Okay. So an apology comes from, I'm going to try and write this out as best I can comes from a rendering of the Greek word apologia, which basically just means a defense. So like when, when Peter in his epistles say, give a reason, like be ready to give a reason for the hope that is, that is within you, right? That word is that. So he's saying, be ready to give a defense of the hope that is there. So it's an explanation, because what happened was we sent off the, uh, the Augsburg Confession to the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Charles. I forget which number he was, but Charles the something. And um, I'm so bad at this. Please forgive me whoever's listening to this online. Um, but we sent it off to Charles, and uh, then um, the Roman scholars dissected it and they responded and then Philip Melanchthon made a defense of the Augsburg Confession from what they wrote to him. So, yeah. Thank you. It's not an apology like, you know, oh, we're so sorry for writing that. Please forgive us. But it's, it's actually kind of, it's also kind of fun to see what sort of struggles they had uh, in writing these things. So, so, if y'all would like to go through parts of that, that's, that's always a good addition to have on your shelves. Uh, um, even if y'all just, you know, I, I was thinking about maybe doing something on going through like, well, we can talk about it. We can talk about it. But I was thinking about going at least through one of the books in there. Because um, you know what? It's worth looking at it and saying, you know, wow. We could spend our the rest of our life and go through the whole thing. True. I I will spend the rest of my life going through the whole thing. Yeah. Honestly, um, I'm I'm in the middle of trying to read the whole thing by the end of the year. And you're reading it to Lottie. I'm reading bits and pieces to Lottie. Yeah. She likes it. It's fun. That and Lord of the Rings, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get into Hebrews 13. We've spent enough time. We'll count that, the first part here, as, as a bit of an advertisement for uh, future classes and what we might look into. So just think about what we could do. If you want to go through parts of the Concordia, uh, parts of the Book of Concord, um, we can order a few copies and have them here and, and you know, have them available. What would you like to do? In well, which it seems to me that you depend a lot on this other fellow. Uh, oh, Dr. Kleinig? Yeah, yeah, right. And Hebrews. Well, that's that's only because um, I, you know, I value him as a scholar. There, there, there are other Hebrews commentaries, but he's so comprehensive that 
um, really helps me understand. But with the Book of Concord, I mean, I really that that would be if if we went through the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, or we went through the Small and the Large Catechisms, or something like that. That would really be more of like a class discussion, saying, "What did you think about this?" Why would it be important for Luther to say this in the large catechism? Or why would it be important for them to write this and make this point? You know, that sort of thing. So that would be more of a discussion-based thing. This is more, I guess, more lecture, but mm -hmm. with, with possible questions from y'all for clarification. So it's really, you know, we can, we can tailor this for however y'all want to do it. But if you want to keep it strictly a Bible study, we can do that. Um... Just as some what I'm thinking for, for for future kinds of classes, maybe like on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night or something like that, we would have uh, a class specifically geared toward the large catechism. Or if I wanted to have, I, I was thinking about doing something like uh, like a class called uh, just generally Christian wisdom, where we would take either part of the Lutheran Confessions or some other book that we would all read together and come ready to discuss and it would only be over 10 weeks, you know. But we would have within that 10, 10 weeks a specific lesson plan and goals to meet and things like that. So just things that are in the works right now. But for Tuesdays, we could turn this into a Confessions study, uh, which would actually be still a Bible study because there's biblical references all throughout. So, something to think about. Something to think about. Well, let's get on with our, our, our uh, study on Romans 13 here. So, we are. Romans? Sorry. Hebrews 13. Um, Hebrews 13. We're, we're going to try to get to or through uh, verse 19. Uh, but, like I said, we might kind of chop, chop this up over a couple. Over this week and next week. We'll try to be, we're definitely going to be done next week for sure. So, anybody want to read verses 1 through 19? I'll read. Okay. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in, in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my help helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited, benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. 
Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you to be... I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Okay. So, there's a lot here. Yes, sure. There's a whole lot. These are the final uh, exhortations um, and instructions to the congregation, right? So, um, that first bit there, let brotherly love which uh, I, I, I wrote this Greek word up here, which can y'all kind of suss out what this is, what that word is? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, yeah. <laughs> the city of brotherly love, right? But um, Philadelphia is... <laughs> this one. Yeah, right? So yeah, you got the phi, so... Phi, yeah. Phil... Right? Philadelphia. Um, well, it's probably spelled differently. I don't know. Anyways, um, I don't really know about Philadelphia as a city that much. But it's the city of brotherly love. But Philadelphia means brotherly love. And what this is talking about is Philadelphia, brotherly love, was used to describe um, the intense regard for biological kinship within a family and a clan in the ancient world, okay? So it was all about familial relationship. I, you know, saying, I am your brother because, you know, as the old saying goes, blood is thicker than water, right? That because we're flesh and blood, I have this strong tie to you, and out of love I will do these things for you, and vice versa, right? That sort of thing. But he's saying... Let brotherly love continue, um, but not in the sense of only with your family or your clan or your nation, your ethnicity, right? But how? What, 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 what sort of brotherly love is he talking about here if it's not between family? Blood family, I guess you could say. Well, replicate the blood of Christ, the love of Christ. Yeah, well, by the... Love your enemies and your friends and your neighbors and everybody else. Right, but he's specifically talking, remember this is a sermon to a congregation. And the whole time we've been talking about the, the relationship between one another in the congregation as the, as the new nation of Israel, right? Israel in the Old Testament, Old Covenant sense was a relationship by blood, right? You belonged to a specific tribe, a specific clan. If you were of the tribe of Judah, you were in the kingly tribe. If you were in the tribe of 
Levi, you were in the priestly tribe and you weren't afforded certain uh, privileges like the others uh, were, but you had to live a certain way because of your tribe and your clan. So those familial ties said a lot about your station in life and who you are. But now that we have Jesus Christ as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, he is the true king, he is the king of kings, the lord of lords, that we are his, his, uh, his kin, <coughs> not by our blood, but by his blood, right? Now we are in this new family. And people that are not brothers by blood are brothers by the blood of Christ. So we have this new familial connection with those in faith, right? And that's what he's getting at, that, that this transcends ethnicity, clan, you know, tribe, nationality, or whatever. Um, which is, I think, a very, it's a very pertinent point to be made in our day and age where there's a lot of division based on race and things that would uh, strive to keep us separated, like things like, you know, critical race theory or something like that, that just only talks about the oppressors and the oppressed, and you can never stop being an oppressor because you're of this certain tribe or clan, and this person down here can never stop being the oppressed, and we say, what are you talking about? We are all one flesh because of Adam. We are all sinners because of Adam. And we are all given the right to be called children of God through the blood of Christ only. Right? So that when we look at these things and we say, look at all this division and hardship caused by all these things that are purporting to be good by saying, we're going to end all the the ethnic strife by bringing down those people that are in the high places. It's just like, well, that's going to cause a lot of harm and hurt and pain. And what we need is reconciliation. But reconciliation about very specific things, not these made-up microaggressions and things that, that you know only cause confusion because we're chasing a specter of injustice. But if someone truly sins against you, call them out for it and be reconciled. Call them to, to a specific and deliberate repentance and forgiveness. Otherwise, you're just talking about injustices all day long without talking about reconciliation, as God would have it. So, let's leave that there. Moving on here, though, we keep brotherly love going. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained... Angels unawares. Now, what, what is, what is he getting at there? Angels unawares. Where, where does that come up before in scripture? You remember anything, any specific stories about that? According to my notes, Abraham, Gideon, and somebody else. And Lot. Abraham. Lot. Lot. Yeah, when the two angels came to Lot. Yeah, the angels coming to uh, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And the angels coming to Lot, and he brought them into his house. Uh, and they actually, because of his hospitality and his faith and things like that, they, they delivered him through and out of Sodom uh, so that their family would be spared. 
the destruction of the city. So there's, you know, there, this congregation listening to this would know those stories. And um, Dr. Kleinick has an interesting point here. He says that, that that was kind of a rare occurrence. You don't see that happening very often in the Old Testament where they're actually having the angels come and, and dine with them, right? But he says that's what, what was once a rare occurrence in the Old Testament is now likely to be far more common. And I think this is interesting, and I'll leave you all to decide if y'all believe, if, if y'all agree with him on this. What used to be a rare occurrence is now likely to be far more common because the congregation now in Christ joins with, joins with the angels in its performance of the divine service in the heavenly city of Jerusalem. So when we say, you know, when I say on Sundays, you know, with angels and with archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name evermore, saying, evermore giving praise to you and saying, Lord, you know, holy, holy, holy. We sing with the angels. It's an interesting thing for us to consider. It's like, you, you know, you could be entertaining an angel without even knowing about it. I, you know, read into that what you want and then how you want. I don't know. I don't know how much more to expound on that. But it's kind of an interesting thought because we... We sing with the angels every Sunday. We worship with the angels every Sunday. They're more likely to be in our lives and active in our lives. In fact, if you pray the, the morning and evening prayer that, that we get from Luther, you know, let your holy angel be with me that the evil foe may have no power over me, right? So our interaction with angels is much more common now because of... Uh, because of our um, reception of what's given in the divine service, right? Um, but it is something to keep in mind, you know, hospitality should be shown to strangers, for sure. Um, the third instruction for the congregation to remember to care for two needy groups that are part of the congregation, verse 3 here, right? Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now, uh, in this circumstances, what? Who would be in prison? Christians. Yeah, Christians. Why? Because they jaywalked. No persecution. <laughs> they didn't want Christianity right. to grow. Right for persecution, because as we'll see further on, and as we've kind of been talking about this whole time with Hebrews, that to be a Christian means that you are a member of a, you're a member of a tribe or a nation that transcends this world. So your allegiance, above all, is to God. Um, that's not to say, of course, that we subvert the earthly uh, government because we, you know, say it's like, God is my president or, you know, whatever. I don't know. God is my king and therefore I will live according to his rules. So that means I'm going to give all my money to the church and not to taxes or something like that. You know? That's not the point. 
the point is, is that, you know, obviously we have Romans 13 and, you know, things like that. Obey your governing authorities. But at the same time, as in Acts, we obey, there are certain times where we must obey God rather than men. Especially when it comes to uh, being mandated by the state not to share the gospel, not to worship God as he would have us do in the divine service, right? Um, so, so you would see that a lot. You'd have these, you know, I, I think I've, I've, I've said it before, but it's worth repeating that in Roman times, Christians were not persecuted for the reason of being Christians, per se, uh, in the sense that, you know, they just didn't like Christians. It's like, ooh, those Christians, we just don't like them. It's because the Christians removed themselves from certain things that had to do with the religion of the Roman state. The Roman state had instituted their gods, right? They had a pantheon. They had, similar to, to the Greek gods, they, they had, you know, uh, Jupiter and Neptune and, and, you know, all these different pantheons of gods. And part of, like, they would have parades, they would have these festivals, but they were always religious in nature, right? So if you had, if there was a, and, and, each, different, and each different city had its own patron god, if you will. So every city, depending on where you were, would have a festival giving honor to their pagan god. And the Christians who lived in that city actively removed themselves from that festival because it was worship to that pagan god. They said, we can't, we can't do that. And when the Roman authorities saw this, they actually charged them with, above all things, you know, they charged them with, um, with atheism because they would not adhere to their god. It's kind of funny, right? Um, that they would they would charge them with atheism and then uh, persecute them, call you know, call them to recant, and if they wouldn't, they'd kill them. It's punishable by death because what you're doing in Rome is you are subverting the state. You are uh, a bad actor, as it were, because they saw you as wanting to undermine everything that they saw made Rome great. So Christians would say, no, we, we pay our taxes. We, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We are good citizens in that way, but we cannot worship these gods, and we can't do anything that would, that would look like we are worshiping these gods. Because it's, it, it, it would be to go against God's command, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. So they were persecuted. They were imprisoned. And here we see that, um, remember those who are in prison, and he uses this nice little um, rhetorical uh, uh, technique to get us to really feel for the people who are in prison by saying, remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them, right? Because it could be you. It could be you in there. And to remember them in prison is not just to say, oh, what a shame, we'll pray for them. 
Certainly, pray for them. But at that time, uh, if you were in prison, it wasn't the uh, it wasn't in the prison system budget to feed you and to take care of you. It was incumbent upon that person's family to provide uh, <coughs> money and food and things like that so they could actually keep living in prison. Uh, and if we are the body of Christ and we are the family of God, right, we are the brothers, we are the sons of God, the family of God, we see our brothers and sisters in prison and knowing that they are in prison because of their faith, as their family, we should support them, right? We should make sure that they know that we care for them. And he says, you know, those who are mistreated, um, yeah. And then he says, the, the reason for their solidarity with these victims of injustice was their own bodily interdependence with one another within the congregation as a physical body of people, right? We are not disconnected from each other as much as uh, certain states in the union would like to have us be, uh, you know. We as Christians are Christians because of what we do um, in terms of, well, we are, we are Christians by faith, right? We believe a certain way, and because we believe a certain way, we do certain things, right? Our faith informs our action. Uh, it's not that we act to gain our faith or the benefits of faith, right? But it's the other way around. Faith informs what we do. So we are known as Christians by what we do because our faith compels us to do so that uh, we as Christians gather together as a literal physical body around the body and blood of Christ. And one of the very disheartening things that, we've, that, that I've seen in this pandemic is this disconnected body of believers. Everyone is scattered, you know. Um, what's really, but, but thankfully, we are in a situation where we're able to privately, you know, I'm able to privately commune certain people that will come. Uh, or I can go to them and take all the precautions I need to provide the body and blood of Christ for them so they know they're part of the body. Here in Texas. Yeah, right. States you can. Right, yeah. People that I can physically go to. But you're seeing there's, there's, there's been a controversy begun in the... Uh, in the Missouri Synod, and, and uh, well, it's rightfully a controversy where um, there are certain churches that uh, will have Holy Communion over the internet. They'll call it that. They'll call it Holy Communion. So they'll, they'll say, you know, um, wherever you're at in your home, get some, some bread and some wine or some grape juice and... Um, gather with your family around the, the, the computer or the TV, and, when, and, and it's done various ways. Either the, the pastor will say the words of institution, and that'll be what will make, what, what will consecrate the, the elements in their individual homes. Some of them I've seen where the pastor will say 
the words of institution and then whoever is presiding in the home will say them over the elements and that'll be and, but there's so many problems with that there's so many problems with that because for lay people to well first of all in terms of the pastor speaking the words and then the lay person repeating them in some ways that is getting things backwards because Pastors are specifically called to preach the word and to administer the sacraments. It's not because the man is a holy person, as you know, Rome, the Roman Church believes that priests have priests are given this indelible character to carry out the sacrifice of the Mass. That's not true. I'm a sinner, right? All pastors are sinners. But it is by the power of Christ that he has given the office of the holy ministry to do these things, to speak these words for the comfort of the people. So when the people start doing this, they start to think to themselves, well, why do I need a pastor? What's the point of having the office of the holy ministry if I can do this in my own home? And, that, and also, if it's just the pastor speaking the words and it's transmitted through the computer or the screen or the speakers, in some ways that's a much more magical thing than anything the Roman church does, right? It's much more magical because it's like all of a sudden it's the voice of the pastor that transforms these things or also the biggest issue, and I'm sorry if this is getting a little kind of crazy, but it's a crazy issue. The biggest problem is the comfort that is received and the uncertainty that is left in that act. Because if you watch me on Sundays, I have the bread and the wine. And every time I say, took bread, this bread, not the bread that's in the cupboard, not the bread that's over here, this bread right here, this cup right here, not the wine over there, you know, not, not, not the bottle of wine someone left out in the hallway, but this right here. And when you don't have that specific direction of where these, of, of which elements you're talking about, who's to say that that can't be abused and someone goes back over time and they watch the video again whenever they want to have communion? <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of crazy, right? It just leaves so many loose ends and leaves uncertainty to just run rampant. Well, and all of that is also causing people to think, I don't need to gather with the body. I'm okay just being by myself. And they, they might think that, and they might believe it, but it is far from the truth. It's interesting to look back at the, the ancient church, the early church, and with these persecutions that came, do you know what was targeted? in these communities, what the Roman authorities would go after to try and get them to stop and to disperse. They would go after the pastor or the bishop. You know, the bishop was known as the overseer, whoever was in that place to be uh, the overseer of the congregation and the altar, right? They would go after the bishop and they would go after the communion wear, basically. They would go after 
the materials they would use for their gathering and receiving of the body and blood of Christ. They would try and get the chalice. They would try and get whatever would hold the hosts, right? They would, they would, they would, they would try and get all they could, and they would go for the books, too. They would get all that they could so that, you know, it's like, like Jesus said, strike the shepherd and uh, if you strike the shepherd, then the, then the sheep scatter, right? They would go after what everyone gathered and rallied around. So it's kind of interesting when you see that they would hide these things and they held these things so precious, not because they were made out of precious metal, but because of what they would deliver in the Lord's Supper, it really makes you wonder. It's like, well, uh, um, it's worth gathering around. It's worth being in person for. Uh, it's not something we should seek to make people disperse because of and say, just stay home and uh, worship from afar, and we'll just do this, and everything, and everything will be fine. Problem is, everything won't be fine. That will take a toll on people, even as necessary as those measures are, right? It takes a toll. Because you don't get to see people face to face. You don't get to engage with them in person. We're not meant to be alone. It's not good for us to be alone in that way. So we do gather as the body of Christ. Um, and whenever, and I, every time I get the chance to, I do, with you know, Billy Charles or Kay or Nancy or anybody else that I get to you know, talk to or see, if I get the privilege to administer communion to them, I always remind them, you are with the body. The body is here worshiping with you. What you are doing is in the same vein of what we did on Sunday. You are with us. You are one with us, right? Because it's important to remember that. We easily forget it, right? Um, but that authority was given to the minister. The minister cannot assign that authority to anyone else. Right. And that's the key, and I just, you know, it, it blows my mind that somebody would have a union in their home with a minister over the internet. Uh, well, you know, there's, there's, it's one of those things where we do our best to, to talk about these things without, without chastising, but rather admonishing for the sake of saying, listen, we want to do things that is going to be the best for the people, for their consciences and for their comfort of soothing whatever affliction they are going through in their conscience, right? And the most certainty we can provide is when they're in person and we say, here it is, right here. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to provide as much comfort as possible in, in these things for those who desire to receive it. To do otherwise, it sidesteps a whole lot of things and it leaves a lot of uncertainty and Satan can kind of creep in between the cracks and say, are you sure what you got was really the body and blood of Christ? Or, look, yeah, you got the body and blood of Christ. You don't need to go to church, sure. right? Go in your pantry and get whatever you want. Whatever right. You want. <laughs> right. Right. Go get some, uh, 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 <coughs> some juicy crackers, you know, um, call it communion. Yeah, and... and it's not that we, the, it's, it's also, I do have to say this, it's not the external things that make what we do special. You know, we could have, we could have, you know, paper cups up there. We could have, you know, solo cups and, you know, if, if that's all we had. But if we have the means 
to have beautiful vessels and the artwork and things like that, just, just like in the sanctuary, these things should reflect and make a good confession of our faith too, right? That yes, we use precious, uh, yes, we use chalices and flagons and all these things, you know, the, the pitchers basically that hold the extra wine. We, we use all these nice things because of what's contained in them, right? It's not that these nice things make it the body and blood of Christ, right? So you have to say that real quick. It's respect for the elements. Right. It's, it's respect for the elements and what God is doing through them and for you. You know, purely what it is. Um, so here we go. Then we're moving on here to marriage. Oh, okay. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Why would he bring this up? What's the point of bringing up marriage here? What's the point of bringing up what? Marriage. Oh. Probably something strange going on with the Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <coughs> no, God instituted marriage, mm -hmm. and He expects you to keep it. <coughs> right. So what? <coughs> right there. Okay. I'll let you know in a minute. Okay. <laughs> well, um, so. What is marriage and an image of? Christ and the church. Christ and the church. Oh. Right? Um, what I do as, as, as a husband for my wife, I, I'm, I'm not perfect. I am a sinner. I, I, I will readily admit it that I am not perfect. I, go, I, I, I do get upset at certain things. I... I you know, pout when I shouldn't or whatever, you know, I, I get, I get defensive or whatever. And, and, but above all, I, I try my best with God's help to, um, see my relationship with my wife as Christ and his bride, the church. So Christ has, you know, Christ sacrificed himself for his bride. He gave his entire self. He poured out everything he had for her. And that's what husbands ought to do for their wives. And wives ought to treat their husbands as Christ. Um, and that's, you know, a sticking point now in our culture because we were watching, even, even like back in the 30s or whatever, um, it, was, it was one of the issues, like it was, I think we were, um, Amelia and I were watching this documentary on Amelia Earhart, and she was, you know, she was, she was talented. She was, she was a pilot, right? And she was very accomplished. But one thing we kind of like rolled our eyes at, we're like, really, is that she went and she, she was married, but when they got married in the vows, they specifically, she said, take out the part where I have to obey him. <laughs> I was like, wow. I don't know. I, 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 you know, that's. It sounds subversive, like, like you know, it's like, oh, I, don't, I have to obey him. But the thing is, is that you're not obeying a tyrant. Um, you're obeying someone who loves you, and who wants the best for you, and who does all he can for you, right? 
Uh, it's 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 not this thing where you're subservient and you're like a sex slave or something, but it's 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 that you have this mutual love and respect. You have this mutual complementary um, relationship together, and that is a picture of Christ and the church. the The husband is the head of the family, you know, the father, and Jesus says in in um, sorry, Jesus, uh, Luther. I need to get that right. Luther says in the small catechism, right, at, at the beginning of every section, as the head of the household should instruct his household, right? And it's like, I think we've, we've, we've really lost that, that men really need, and it's been a perpetual problem in the church, even in Luther's time, because men go out and work, and now you're giving them the extra task of teaching the faith. But that's important, right? because it is an image of Christ in the church. Um, so we see here that marriage is to be held in honor. And that's actually where we get in the, the marriage, right? You okay? Am I all right? Yeah, you all right? Do you need some water? Need some water? Um, is there water in the refrigerator? Just making sure you're all right. <laughs> yeah. A little water helps. Um, but in, in the marriage rite, we actually see that, uh, that, that marriage should be held, uh, that the marriage is an, an, an honorable state, right? Yep. Um, that uh, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That to engage in these things is, you know... It is definitely not good, of course. But um, the point is that marriage is to be highly prized and that the marriage bed is to be kept pure and undefiled as a holy state within the holy congregation, right? I mean, that is one of the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, right? Um, and that extends into our understanding of, you know, that we are not just engaging in these things abstractly, spiritually. We don't just think about them. We actually do certain things, right? And we don't do certain things as Christians. Um, fifth uh, verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So I did 5 and 6 there just to kind of run through it a little bit, that um, That's a big problem today. What's that? Five and six. Letting money be the ruler of your life? Earthly things and well. material material wealth. Yeah. But be content. That is very difficult. Yeah. To be content with what the Lord's given you. Right. Because you're always saying, oh man, I wish I had that. Man, <laughs> why can't I have that? You know, and, and you have to step back and you have to say, stop. Be yeah. content. The Lord's right. given you what you need. Right. Not what you want, but what you need. That's that's a battle that I have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The devil's good at that one. I'm in a swimming pool, so I'm content with my waiting. Exactly. 
<laughs> well, okay, so, and I'll, I'll take this a step further, you know, that we, we you know, I'll, I'll take it to a macro level where we're seeing issues in the society that um, I'm, I have to remember how old I am now. I'm 33. No, you're 34. No, I'm not. I'm 33. I'll be 34 in November. No, you were. So I was 34. So I was 33. That I'm, 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 I'm 33. When I met Amelia, I was 30, 31, right? And I am glad that I'm glad that you know I did all that I did, and 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 you know. Um, learned all that I did and, you know, was learned to be content in some ways with being single before I got married. But at the same time, I wish, I, I really desired to be married at the, at, at the same time, but <clears throat> my personal struggle with things was that included, you know, uh, it's like, well, having a wife and kids, you know, it, it kind of with what I want to do with my life, I got to find someone who will want to, you know, be a part of that and this, that, and the other. There are others out there who say, you know, well, I'm, I'm on a really good track with my career. I don't want to get married right now, right? Um, that uh, my job is what keeps me from getting married or having kids, and that's really sad it, be, because. You know, more and more, it's become the norm, and not just the exception, that um, both women and men forsake a family and marriage, which are godly estates and godly gifts, for the sake of their career. Now, is it because... <laughs> I can't read people's hearts. But typically, is it because they just really love what they do? Or more often, is it because they got a really good paycheck? I think it's both. It could it be both. On the individual. It could be both. I'm yeah. not here to speculate on that stuff. What I am here to say is that it's really sad when there are people who will look at life and only see dollar signs and how much things are going to cost as opposed to trusting in the Lord for what he will provide, being content with what you have, not necessarily saying you don't have to apply for that managerial position, uh, but to say, listen, uh, what are your priorities? And are you, do your priorities include trusting that God will grant you good things um, in the form of, you know, marriage, Children, things like that, right? Um, children have become more of a line item than they have been a blessing recently, I think. Uh, I mean, every, you know, there's it's like, kids are so expensive. Just like... Dogs are too. Dogs can be too. <laughs> I mean, have you seen... Okay, just to get a little bit of a tangent here. Do y'all, like, on Shark Tank, you know, there's so many, so many people that come up with all this stuff for pets. Just like, oh my gosh. There's more stuff on there for, like pet products than there are for children and, 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 you know, toys or whatever. But I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. But I think you're seeing, that's, I think that, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to pontificate too much, but just to say that it's kind of interesting that you see that in the body of Christ, 
Well, you are seeing more and more in certain Christian circles that real thrust to young families to say, y'all need to have kids. You know, please have, have children. We love children. That's how the church grows too. It's not just about evangelizing. It's also about having children and families. Um, in fact, like, I, I think, uh, and I'm not alone in this, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not alone in this, but it's like, you know, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, just like every other church body, we're in decline. Everyone's in decline right now. Uh, they've but, been in decline for 50 years. They've been in decline for a long, long time, yeah. yeah. Well, but the thing is, though, is that um, we have numbers on these things, right? We have numbers on how many people it takes to convert someone, you know, that, you know to how many people it takes in a statistical model to help convert someone into the church. It's four people. <laughs> it takes four people on average, right? Unless you got some extraordinary people, some really dedicated people. It takes on average four people for one convert. That's, that's the average. Uh, in the Missouri Synod, which is actually really good because there are others where it's like, you know, gets up to 10. So in the Missouri Synod, we got a good thing going for us where it does, it, it just takes four, four people to make one convert. But as a friend of mine put it, it takes two people to make a child. Yeah. <laughs> so all I'm saying is that, you know, if you're going to have, I, 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 there's, all that is a roundabout way to say, there's been a big issue in the church on evangelism, which we need to have. We need to go out and we need to try and talk to our friends and say, hey, come to church with me sometime. It'd be really nice. We'd love to have you. You know, our pastor's really nice. He's got a nice family. It'd be nice to get to know him, you know, that, that sort of thing. It's, it's good to do those things, for sure. But on the other side of things, uh, these young families that aren't having any children, um, you think to yourself, well, uh, if you're not having kids, go out there and start inviting people, please, right? And not that you can only do one or the other. But to say we also need to think about that. Uh, people are getting married later, and they're having less kids. Well, and so. we're lucky that they even get married because a lot of these people are just living together and they're even having kids not even being married. That's right. Yet. That's right. You know, and that just irks me. Yeah, and you know what? They need to be invited to church too. Oh, they do. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, yeah, exactly. Because there are plenty of times in seminary where we would talk about, you know, um, what do you do with someone who is attending your church they have kids, you know, it's a couple, and they have like four or five kids, and they act like they're married. You've never questioned whether they were married at all. By all legal reasons, they're probably common law married, but they never actually had a ceremony. They've never actually had the blessing, you know, of that marriage in church. And you say to them, and, and, then, and then it comes up in conversation. You know, it's like, oh, because, because you're talking about marriage and what a great estate it is and things like that. And they get convicted and they come to you and say, Pastor, we're not married. We'd like for you to marry us. And you go, how's Thursday work for you? <laughs> right? Marry them, right? And, 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 and you know, that's, that's, that's a good confession too. So, um, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, I got Thursday afternoons wide open. You know, just come on in. 
Let's have it. Let's let's get this thing going. I'll even do it on Friday. Right. Yeah. Whenever. You know. Just make it happen. Um, but you see these things. You know that um, keep your keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Um, we'll stop there today because there's, there's much more we can get into. We're already into an hour. Um, but these are good things for us to remember. Be content with what you have because God will never leave us nor forsake us. He gives us all that we need. And even more so, he gives us all that we could ever imagine in the everlasting life provided through the blood of Christ. This world, you know, we stay in it for as long as God would have us stay. But when it's time for us to be called, called home, right? When it's time for us to um, shuffle off this mortal coil, right? When, when it's time for us to be called to the side of Christ, um, waiting for the last day uh, when all sin and death and the power of Satan will for sure be wiped away completely, um, we have comfort knowing, you know, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me, especially right now. With all this political turmoil, no matter who wins the election, or any election, we can always say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Um, regardless of who wins the election, I'm not going to get into it, but regardless of who wins the election, we always trust in Christ. We always know that he is the one who provides, you know, God is the one who provides for us, um, and that we have all things because of him. And, you know, sometimes we're called to be like Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, there's enough of us in here older than you that we've been hearing, this isn't what I started to say, but we've been hearing this for years. Now, see, wait, I bring that up. What was it you said? Hearing what for years? Uh, whatever it was you said. <laughs> like it doesn't matter who wins the election or... Right, and um, we've been through elections every four years. We hear the same thing. You know, uh, not to put it off, and it is important to, that we're sure. aware of it and so forth. But, I mean, it's just... It just goes on and on, and we've been hearing it all of our lives. We've been hearing it all of our lives. Haven't we? Thank you. <laughs> well, the problem well, we is... We make it through, don't we? Yes. Regardless. But it's well, getting worse. Well, the problem is that, yeah, in some ways, in some ways it's getting worse because um, the the attacks on Christianity are becoming less and less veiled. They're not as covert as they once were. Um, and, you know, we don't live in a theocracy. You know, we don't, we don't live in a, a place that we have, you know, where like we have a pope and he rules both religiously and in a civil way. We, we don't have those things. Except in California. <laughs> 
Well, depends on what your religion is. Um, yeah, yeah, but Muslim doesn't care what your religion is. Well, but the thing is, is that things are getting worse in some ways um, because people have. I think we've we've reached a point in the church where we got a, we got a little too complacent. Um, we got a little too comfortable. Um, we made it not such a big deal to miss church too often, where we kept saying, you know, well, maybe they'll come back, as opposed to knocking on their door and saying, hey, we miss you. How you doing? You should come back to church. We really miss you, you know. Or, hey, you should come back to church because, you know, it's the forgiveness that we all need, you know. Um, but we've got a little, we've gotten a little too comfortable in the prosperity of our forefathers in some ways, and we just kind of let it slip by. And because of that, it's been, you know, for guys like me who are young, uh, raising, raising a child and hopefully children um, in this world, it's going to be tough, and we're going to have to do it in a way that is going to be very countercultural. Uh, because the culture is definitely not on our side. But, you know, there for the grace of God go I. Okay, we've heard this before, haven't we? <laughs> the very same words. In, I'm not trying to minimize it, sure. but we've all heard just what you said. You're trying to raise a family and all that. You heard that when you were a girl. You heard all these people trying to do the right things. We've all heard it. Mm -hmm. what it and I don't know. I'm sorry I said it. I don't Ecclesi Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. Right. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity in some ways, right? The, yeah, the only thing you learn from history is that Man doesn't learn anything from history. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We also, was it, I can't remember who said it, but, you know, uh, history does not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Rhymes? In that nothing actually happens the exact same way the second yeah. time around, but it's very similar. Right? Yeah. But, the, but, but the point is, the point, and yes, you probably heard this before, and you're going to keep hearing it because... <clears throat> It's worth knowing. We like to maybe think that way back when was a golden age and we got to just work towards it. And, you know, it's like, oh, if it was only like when Luther was around. It's like, are you kidding me? Have you read, have you read the things that Luther wrote? Have you read the preface to the small catechism? How he says that the people in these small towns and things like that are so disserviced by their pastors. They're no better than the, than the dumb cows in the field, you know? So it's like... They were trying to kill him. Yeah, and yeah, he was fear. He was in fear of his life, right? So the, there is no golden age. There's always a strife, and that's part of what Hebrews is getting at. And we'll get to next time for sure at the very end of once once we finish off this book. Is that at the end of the, at the end of the day? I mean, that's why Jesus says, um, uh, you know. Don't don't be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And Paul even says, beware the days for they're evil. Right? Around every corner, Satan is lurking. And it's always been that way ever since the fall. 
Peter says, Be on your guard for, for your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he will devour. Resist him firm in your faith. And the thing is, is that if we only focus on all those things that are so awful and terrible and the stalking of, you know, Satan, now he's always around the corner looking for us, trying to find a way to make us fall. If we focus on those things so much, we lose focus of where our true strength is found, which is in Christ. So yeah, you're going to hear it because it's worth hearing over and over again about how Things are getting bad and they're going to get worse, but you know what's a good thing? Things are going to get worse because Scripture says they have to get worse, and as bad as they get, the comfort is that Jesus himself even said that, you know, once you see these things happening, look up for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that you'll soon be delivered. The end is near, and that's a good thing, right? It's not something to be feared as long as you are in Christ. So we await that day. And we ask fervently, you know, come Lord Jesus, right? We ask for him to come quickly to Amen. save us. Yeah. Well, let's, let's close as we always do with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.